0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. I wanted to start off by welcoming everybody to our panel discussion today. Uh, Before we get started, let me just say thank you for all of you for coming out and supporting our event and for helping us recognize Mental Health Awareness Month. Thank you to the speakers, to our panelists for coming out and taking time out of their busy day to come and talk to us as well about this important issue. Uh, A special thanks to Mitch Baker. Where are you, Mitch? A special thank you to Mitch, to our psychology club members, to the psychology department, to the liberal arts department, for all their collaboration, all their help in helping us organize this event and to bring it to everybody today. So we should give all of them a hand. A second round for the library for helping set up this beautiful panel discussion. Now, our panel discussion today is going to be uh, addressing the issues of mental illness and campus violence. Which I'm sure you all read the news. Uh, we've had two uh, very large incidents in within the past year. One an hour away from here at Northern Illinois. So, I believe it's an issue that's worth addressing here on our campus because. I'm seeing everybody from the audience. I have to assume either you teach here, you work here, or you go to school here, right? So it clearly affects us. So I think it's something worth addressing. Some of the things that we're going to talk about today uh, are, in particular, how do we prevent? What preventative measures does our college take, like safety measures? Uh, How are we able to recognize some problems that either students or staff may be experiencing? And also, if you are having issues, where can you get help and how can those issues be addressed for you on our campus. And lastly, we're gonna talk about also medications and how that interacts with mental illness. Now, uh, mental illness is a very, very common experience. Uh, If anybody was here for our session last year, it can be also one of the most misunderstood. So I definitely don't want, uh, we definitely wanna talk about the myths versus reality because we don't want anybody walking out of here thinking that mentally ill people are dangerous individuals. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce the panel members and we'll get started. And throughout, as the panel members talk about their uh, topics, I'm probably going to come in the audience, and if you guys have questions, concerns, opinions, just go ahead and raise your hand. We're going to try to get to you as, as best as we can. But wh- who we have on our panel is, I'll start all the way to the left. We have David Taylor, and David is a professor and department chair of counseling and advising here at our college. Uh, he also leads a variety of workshops uh, related to personal and career development. Sitting next to David, we have a special guest if you guys want to clap, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. <All> right. <laughs> Nobody clap. No. <laughs> applause. <laughs> <The> applause <laughs> sign. Okay. We have uh, sitting next to David uh, a special guest from from Northern Illinois. We have Dr. Mickey Sharma, uh, who's the Director of Counseling and Student Development Center at Northern Illinois University. And uh, uh, Dr. Sharma was responsible for organizing the 500 volunteers, uh, the counselors that came out to work with all the students after the uh, February shootings. Let's give uh, Dr. Sharma a hand for being here, too, for making it all the way out to Northern. We also have sitting next to Dr. Sharma Mary Hughes, who is a professor of nursing here at our college. Uh, Mary. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mary... <laughs> I
0: agree. Mary rocks. No. <laughs> be good. Mary is a psychiatric nurse. She's a psychiatric nurse. has worked with uh, several clients and uh, and uh, talking to her today. She's uh, has been a nurse for uh, over 35 years. So she has brings a lot of experience to our panel today. Let's give Mary another hand. Thanks <laughs> next to Mary, we have uh, our own police chief, Patrick, uh, uh, police chief Patrick O'Connor. And uh, uh, Chief O'Connor has served in law enforcement for over 30 years as well, and has a lot of experience, and will be able to tell us uh, about some of the safety measures that our campus is taking. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And lastly, from Tinley Park Mental Health Center, we have Dr. Robert Eisinga, who's the chief psychologist at Tinley Park, also the director of forensic services at Tinley Park for over 20 years. Dr. Eisinga brings to our panel uh, 35 years of experience with the Department of Human Services and has also testified on more than 800 uh, psychiatric commitment hearings as well. So without further ado, we're going to bring our first topic up, and th- which is, and we've gotten this asked by a lot of students and staff, our, our Moraine Valley safety protocol, the emergency plan, and the notification process. And uh, Chief O'Connor, we're going to ask that you address this particular topic.
2: Thank you for asking me to be here today. And, and every time I get a chance to reach out to staff and student, I think it's important. Uh, most of you know that I've talked to before. Is that I've spent 32 years in law enforcement, and and I was a municipal chief. Uh, I've just been here for the last year. And one of the things that we looked at, uh, both myself and, and administration, we got here is how do we get things done? And I think it was unique that I came here directly from municipal sector four days after Virginia Tech, so I uh, I woke up very quickly to uh, campus concerns. And, and as we looked at our disaster plan, you know, notification, this is well before the Northern issue, but notification was, was paramount because as you look back over campus violence issues, communication has never been one of those issues that we as campuses have done very well. Uh, if, in fact, you go from building to building, uh, you really don't know what's going on in the other building. And one of the things we had looked at is How do we reach out to all of you uh, and and let you know what's going on in the college? So we had a a, a general review of the police procedures, and we've entered into intergovernmental agreements uh, with all of our neighbors uh, through the state ALIAs program. Uh, and what we that basically means is, with a single phone call, uh, there's an activation for all my neighbors. So, if in fact we ever did have a uh, a violence issue on this campus, my officers would respond in an active shooter situation to handle the active shooter. But then I've got all my staff and students who, who don't know what's going on. Well, first thing that's going to happen is realistically my neighbors are going to come down to pre positions and they're going to handle issues while we deal with the shooter issue. Then the next issue you're going to be dealing with is campus-wide communication. Uh, one of the things that I'm a, the biggest proponent of is, is, is keeping it simple. Uh, and what we, we did is we had a campus PA system here when I came. Uh, and it reached out to many spots at the campus, but it didn't reach out to all of the spots in the campus. And we brought some speakers in the common ways. We've balanced the speakers off. We've put this obnoxious tone that comes through the speakers to get your attention. Because we all know, and uh, me teaching here for seven or eight years before I got here, recognized that the first thing a, t- a, a, a teacher tells you to do in your classroom It's to shut off your cell phones. Uh, So, you know, as I glance down, I'm not ridiculous, and I recognize with all those text messages going back and forth that the phone messages aren't ringing, but they're shaking on your leg or your hip or in your purse. So uh, we look towards texting you and the text capability, and that's being developed right now. We have an instant messenger service. In other words, we can send out a broad telephone message well because I've seen all those heads bobbing up and down while the phones have been silenced I recognize that you're still taking phone calls Uh, so I recognize that not only the professors but also the students in the classroom will also have the opportunity if they don't hear the PA speaker to also accept phone calls and text messages so we've looked at kind of a three-pronged system in terms of not only being able to announce it publicly and the common ways out in the courtyards but we also want to reach into the classrooms itself our director of uh, uh, information technology and I have talked, and, and, and Jack is, is working towards being able to take control of your desktops on your computers. So as, a, as an adjunct for a long time here, that would mean if I'm in a smart classroom, my desktop would be taken over in an emergency and a message would be popped up on there. For you, if you're in the LRC, our goal is to be able to turn on a message with a pop-up message on on the workstation that you're working on anywhere in the LRC or any classroom. So well before Northern, what we actually did was we looked towards how can we reach into spots on the campus that we normally couldn't. Uh, And through our IP telephone uh, system, we're actually working on trying to go into those areas that don't have speakers. In other words, the small private office areas, reach into those areas and be able to take those phones over also and have announcements coming through there. So what I will tell you is that's one of the the, the mechanics of what we're doing. now, the other part of the program is what I will tell you is uh, the other part that you're involved in is just as a participator on the campus, you're part of the early warning and protection system. So we're going to get in that when we talk a little bit later in terms of we have to reach out to you. you know, our armed officers and our community service officers in the buildings can't do anything if you don't speak to us, and both counseling and also the police department and the dean's office have been working towards threat assessments but if, if in fact you don't come with, to us with information that third leg of the ladder, the students and staff here can't help us uh, pick these, these hazards and threats out. So what we're really asking you to do is you're part of the participation in campus security now and just to round this off without going too far, I would say that as staff members and as students here, and even as uh, resident visitors who come in and maybe use our facilities, if you don't see something that's not right, any red phone in this campus will go directly to the police department. Any 911 phone call from your text will bounce from Southwest Central Dispatch to my front desk, and we will be able to handle those emergencies. But reach out. History has shown that almost all campus violence situations, there was there's an outcry. Somebody told somebody something, and that information wasn't relayed.
0: Chief, if I can ask, uh, when you say that something is noticed, uh, can you speak to what is the comment, let's say, because my threshold of what might be concerning might not be concerning to somebody else, let's say, here in the audience. Like, if somebody hears something that another student says, like blowing up a building or... I'm going to come in here and really harm that person. Is that, I mean, obviously that's pretty extreme. Is there anything less extreme that we should be reporting?
2: You know, we all have those people that we've known in every class that we've had that just don't seem to gel with the class. They tend, they, and and different behavior. And my panelists will tell you different behavior is fine. We're all different. But if in fact they're adversarial to you, if they tend not to get engaged, if they make random unsolicited comments that purport violence, those are the things they should get back to your teacher. If you're a staff member, it should get back to your supervisor your dean because we want to know those. Uh, we, we keep that information confidential. And I'll be honest with you, I've dealt with a few of them since I've been here, uh, and, and we can mitigate them. And that's why we're working closely with counseling, and we're working very close with the dean's office. That that's not a life or death sentence here at the college, but it allows us to get people engaged so they can get help. And the object in the game, and you're going to hear this from the other panelists, is we want you to be successful here. But to be successful, staff members and students have to let their fellow students be successful. In other words, if they need help, we get got to bring that help to them. Chief, thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to ask our, uh, our, our second speaker for the second topic, and this one's going to be directed for Dr. Sharma. Dr. Sharma, would you be able to share with our audience uh, the experience a few months ago at Northern Illinois University uh, during the incident and the climate at that time and uh, and to piggyback off of that what services were the students at Northern seeking then and now? Okay well
3: I, I could probably talk for a couple hours about some of those things. Let me start out by uh, sharing with you from my perspective what I experienced what occurred on 214 on our campus. Um, I was in a meeting with one of my staff members, and the phone rang, and I didn't get it. I don't answer the phone when I'm meeting with someone one-on-one. And then my assistant director came to my door, and he knocked and walked in. Now, that's unusual. Usually, if I'm in a meeting, someone will knock and they'll wait. But he knocked and entered. And he said that a student had just completed his appointment at the counseling center, had left the building, and couldn't get across the street because there had been a shooting in the student union. He came back into the counseling center. So I looked out the window and started ringing some phones to try to figure out what was happening. And when I talked to a colleague across the hall, she didn't say hello when she answered the phone. She answered the phone by saying, Mickey, is it true? Now, one of our assistant vice presidents is in our building, and then she told me that he had gone across campus to DuSable, which is next to Cole Hall. Once I heard that that had happened, I knew that something very terrible had occurred on our campus. I then um, got a call. We have a crisis response team, of which I'm a member, and the message I got was, uh, please report to Altgeld in the vice president's wing where the team meets. Uh, Come to Altgeld if you're able. At this point, this is the only information I have. If I'm able. I don't know what has happened yet. And at this point in my building, which is primarily student affairs departments, the scene was getting pretty chaotic. A lot of students had congregated in the building. Staff members were in there. Information was floating around. So I was trying to reach this assistant vice president, and at this time my cell phone was no longer getting service. And I got a handwritten message that this individual wanted to speak with me. So I was able to get to a landline and speak to him. And when I spoke to him, he confirmed that the shooting had happened and gave me a, a number of victims that he had at that time, but that the shooter was down, and that was confirmed from police that the shooter was down. So that I was then able to brief my staff, and uh, James Brunson, who's his assistant vice president, came back to the building, and he and I tried to do what we could with some of this chaos going on in our building, and then move over to the vice president's wing to start working on emergency response. Now... Cole Hall, where the shooting occurred, is a classroom building. One of the there are many differences and similarities between our event and what happened at Virginia Tech. One of those is that at Tech, the buildings had been locked, and so people couldn't escape or get out. On our campus, nothing was locked, so people were immediately scattering outside, which means that you had individuals who were in the classroom as well as people who were victims of the shooting running across campus. Some of them were redirected into Neptune, which is a residence hall, right next to Cole Hall. So you had people who were injured into Neptune Hall, which is a residence hall, and these are people who were injured and who are bleeding. So then rumors had started floating that there was a second shooter in Neptune. Now, that started because there were people who were injured in Neptune, but there was no second shooter. So what we did in the immediacy is I moved over to start working on the university crisis response. Uh, Our counseling center staff started getting dispatched to different parts of the campus, always going in uh, multiple pairs. So we had staff go over to Neptune because we had individuals who were upset over there. Coal Hall was in a protected region, so no one could get close to that. Um, and we also had staff go into the home student center, which is our student union, and we started sending up remote counseling areas for students. As these people scattered across campus, within 10 to 15 minutes, counselors on the staff at, at, at my office were interacting with students who were in that classroom within 10 minutes or so because, as I said, they had scattered. I was getting calls from across campus from faculty who said, this person is in our building, was in the classroom, now wants to go home, but we're concerned about this person just leaving right now. So we were starting to provide mental health services at pockets across campus. Individuals were transported to Kishwaukee Hospital, uh, which is the closest hospital to DeKalb, and we had a staff member out there before the evening was uh, completed. We had uh, over 100 students and faculty and staff who had congregated the hospital to receive news. Uh, As you're well aware, for at least five individuals, that news was devastating for five families. we continued to, to work through that day and through the evening. The council center remained open for students until um, well into the later part of the evening. We had counselors come and join us from the University of Illinois Chicago's campus as well as from a local community mental health center. Uh, the next day I organized a orientation for volunteers, and we, in less than 12 hours notice, had I think about 35 people, clinicians from across the DeKalb and Chicagoland area come to assist us on that day, bearing in mind that classes were canceled that day and through the next week. And so on that next day, February 15th, we had counselors in every single residence hall on campus, and they were kind of going door to door and checking on students who were there. We were also there in every residence hall on the 14th through the evening. Most students on the 14th through the evening chose to go home. Um, some parents were coming to pick up their students. Other students were going, trying to go home. Some students wanted to stay, and Mom and Dad did not want them to stay, and kind of going through that. The university made a decision to not have classes for an entire week, which was the right decision. And that allowed uh, a couple things to happen. That meant that for anyone who chose to attend memorial or funeral services for the five individuals who were killed, did not have to worry about any academic priorities or attending class. It allowed us to focus during the week of healing, as our president called it, on the needs of the faculty and staff. So while classes were closed that whole week, the university reopened officially on Tuesday. The Counseling Center remained open every single day and offered extended hours. So while the university was closed, our staff was in there seeing people as people were continuing to come in. So during that initial week, we met myself and my counterparts from Virginia Tech and the University of Arkansas, uh, came to campus and joined me, and the three of us, provided uh, sessions for every faculty member, frontline staff, and teaching assistants on how to return to the classroom and how to manage this, and our director of our EAP program joined that as well. So that was very well received, and it allowed us to focus on the needs of faculty and staff during that first week, and then students returned the next week. On Sunday evening, we had a memorial service before classes began, and that was in our convocation center in Osamalcast around campus. The next day, the first two days of class, we had a counselor in every single class on Monday and Tuesday in the main campus in DeKalb and the three satellite campuses. So we had one counselor in every class Monday and Tuesday. We had a total of 509 volunteers come devote their time, energy, expertise to assist us. And honestly, if I would have needed a 1,000 people, I could have had a 1,000 people. We had to turn people away. I put an e- I started by sending out an email call across different listservs and uh, regional and national associations on Sunday that would have been the 17th um, for the following Monday and I don't know what that total figure was in terms of I know it's roughly around 1000 because there were agencies that were responding saying we can send eight people you know we can send we'll send our whole clinical staff so people came from as far as Arizona and Massachusetts and uh, hundreds from Illinois. Um, So on those first two days of class, they were there in every class. They did not provide group therapy. They did not provide individual therapy. They provided what we call psychological first aid. They made a few talking points. They talked about signs and symptoms to be mindful of, gave information about the counseling center and where students can go for additional assistance if he or she chose to do that. And then they followed the lead of the faculty member. We remember that prior week we had had sessions with a faculty member to talk about how to handle this, and we'd encourage faculty to, as they felt comfortable, to disclose what they wanted to disclose about how they had been responding. And we were particularly sensitive to the needs of some class Versus other classes because there were some classes that were meeting where people weren't there, and this was going to be the first time for those classes to congregate when someone wasn't there, and that makes it very, very real for students, for friends, roommates, fraternity brothers, sorority sisters, and for our faculty. And so it's one thing when we spend a week kind of talking about that, and then it becomes much more real when you're getting together for the first time. Because as the classes were canceled for a week, the majority of our students went home, and then they've come back. So there was this reentry. And so that was a significant uh, occurrence on our campus. Um, Yeah,
0: go ahead. I can say that I I think we can speak for uh, everybody in attendance here, that Northern Illinois, uh, the faculty, and the counseling Center handled uh, the crisis exactly the way it should have been handled.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: As you were saying, your students are still receiving services.
3: Right. We... um, So the students who've come in, um, we have paid uh, most particular attention to the students most directly impacted as well as those in most acute distress. When you have a situation like this, we've seen a number of responses from our students. Obviously the people who were in and around Cole Hall have experienced a very real trauma. You know, one thing that I think where a light bulb went up for us is we've remained in contact with our friends at Virginia Tech who've been so helpful. And it hasn't just been myself talking, my counterpart, but our president, legal counsel, career services director, athletics director, secretaries. Everybody from Tech has reached out to their counterparts, and that's been helpful. But one thing that they said to us that was very powerful was, you have witnesses. Their incident was contained within a building. We had people scatter across campus and run into other buildings. So in that way, many, many more people were impacted by this. So we've been dealing with people who have been directly impacted and their traumatic reactions, which can be concentration, sleep, appetite, other types of disruptions. Then we have other students who have come in who were not around Cole Hall, um, but may have had their own kind of trauma history or past violence or are struggling with something else but doing okay. And all of this just pushed them really kind of over the edge. And they're dealing with that. Um, we have other students who are have, over the last couple of months, have had personal issues unrelated to 214, but do not feel comfortable talking about that with anyone because... I think they're judging their emotional response. Like, I have this issue going on in my personal life, but this is not worthy of talking about because we've got other people on our campus who are killed. So I'm having trouble academics with my academics because this is going on, but I shouldn't talk about that, even though that is a very you know, serious and significant thing for them. Um, well, Dr. Sharma,
0: thank yeah. you very, very much for, for sharing that with us. And, and we turned the, uh, the question, unless there's anything else that you wanted to... Uh,
3: no, i Chair as well. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, uh, what I always tell my staff is I have a propensity not to shut up, so it's good if someone can take the <laughs> mic from me.
0: David, we, 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 we turn the topic and the question to you is, what counseling services are available at Moraine Valley Community College and uh, and I don't know if we can answer this, but based on Northern's needs, can we provide that? I guess it's a double question. Oh, I don't
4: answer double questions.
0: (laughs) What services can we provide (laughs) in such a crisis? Would we be able to provide that to our students as well? And what kind of services can a student expect to receive at the counseling center, maybe even if they're not in a crisis?
5: Okay,
4: well, first of all, right now I don't think you can expect to receive any because all the counselors are sitting right out here now. There's nobody in a Counseling Center, but anyway. Would you please stand? I'm going to ask the counselors to please stand.
0: Counselors, please stand.
4: Please. Okay. All right, you have Suzanne Cusack, Aphrodite Nema. You have Suzanne Nasser, Linda Brandt. And Sharon Brennan. That that is a significant portion of our counseling staff. There are some that are not here, uh, but that you are welcome to visit with them, and they are on our on our on our staff. I guess how I'll, I'll try to do this. You know, the counseling center, and what what can you expect? Counseling center is set up on a brief um, counseling model. The attempt is that services are provided with an eight to ten session kind of an experience. And during that 8-10 to session you hope you set some goals, counseling goals, and then you're able to reach those goals. So it's a brief, short-term counseling model. The major focus of the issues, the major focus, it is a counseling and career development center is in three areas. One of the areas is, they're different names, call it learning success call it psychoeducational counseling, call it whatever you want to. It is an attempt to help uh, achieve academic success. Running all the way from motivation issues, time management issues, study skill anxieties, things of that nature. And we attempt to provide counseling services in that area. A second area is the area of career development. Now, you guys are lucky. You all know where you want to go and what you want to be if you ever grow up, okay? There are several other folks who don't have that luxury, and they like to come and visit with us.
0: I'm sorry if you can speak into the mic a little bit, Dave.
4: They can't hear me? <laughs> all right. Sorry about that, okay? In the, in the area of career, clarifying your values, your work values, uh, clarifying your skills clarifying your vocational interest and then trying to develop a path to achieve that. And then the third area is your social personal kinds of issues. Uh, and we provide counseling in that area also. Whatever brings you to the center relating to some social personal kinds of concerns. So very generally that that are the three that's the three areas we primarily focus on. Now we're very very fortunate very, very fortunate in terms of the staff that we have and the background and the qualifications that they have. Uh, you have a, a licensed clinical psychologist, a doctorate in psychology, we have a licensed clinical social worker, we have um, one who is a masters in pastoral counseling and also a masters in social work and is completing your final steps for a licensed, a licensed clinical social worker, and etc. cetera. They're all LPCs, licensed professional counselors, and a couple of them are uh, finishing their final requirements for the licensed clinical professional counselor. And so when I talk about the areas of the academic and the career and the personal, we also maintain an on-call kind of a, a, a availability. Where a counselor is on call because crises do present themselves, and so that is that is we are there prepared to try to respond to a student in crisis and help them do crisis management and find an appropriate avenue which to take to, to resolve the issue. So that's there. Now you ask about could we respond to the extent that Northern Illinois did? I can only use some examples. Okay, and the examples I would have I'll go back from nine eleven. Now you've had counselors at 9-11 have fanned, just as Dr. Sharma mentioned that they've done in Illinois, our staff moved, got together, coordinated, a couple of us are going over here, a couple of us are going over there. Same thing has happened in a a circumstance where a couple of years ago a um, young international student got killed in an auto accident. And two of our counselors then went and met with all of the international students to help them process that grieving process. Uh, we've had counselors when uh, a faculty member was killed um, and go and spend time in there, be present, be present uh, to try to help the students to deal with that or if they've had another student. So is there a direct, formal setup? Because I'm sure that they responded spontaneously, somewhat you know, with how they're gonna do it. No, what you have is a group of folk who know what they need to do and they respond accordingly and and go out through the campus. I guess that's how I would sum it up. David,
0: thank you. I have another question. Hypothetically speaking, let's say a faculty member has a student who is clearly having psychological issues in class, disruptive in class, and who we know will not probably take our referral to go to the counseling center. Can we make it mandatory for that student if we have reason to believe that that student may be likely or Church probably to see
4: counseling. We discuss this about every week. You know that what is mandatory, what is isn't mandatory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, can can I say to you, Nick, you cannot mandate a student to come and see me? Absolutely not. I can't. I can't do that. Okay. Um, in fact, we were having a little bit of that conversation just before we came in here today. And I speak for uh, all the faculty. Okay. However, you have cases. I've twice in the last 3 weeks been called saying they had a concern and I made a choice I personally made a choice that I would just go to that class and kind of be observant kind of be be introduced to kind of discuss it okay at the same time there have been a, two cases where through judicial has suggested very strongly that they go see, and they, they ended up there. I guess you really get into the question and the understanding of what the word "mandating" means. Okay, what it means in terms of how they present themselves to me, and do I have to deal with that issue before we start dealing with the substance of what's ever causing them difficulties? Uh, it is a it is something that needs to be looked at, needs to be discussed, and taken from 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 a lot of angles. Okay. But I would say to you as a faculty member, as I would say to any faculty member, referring, okay, and we have many faculty members who walk the student over. A little bit better than mandating. Okay, a little bit better than mandating. That's good the to know for us. Who will walk the student to the counseling center. And it really helps in terms of the whole atmosphere and dealing with the situation. So I don't know whether I'm answering your question. No, I think
0: that was perfectly answered. Thank you. Oh,
4: that's typical. (laughs) You didn't know you were going to have a good time here, did you?
5: Thank you.
0: Uh, On the psychiatric-slash-psychological side of this question, we would like to ask... uh, are there particular signs and symptoms? And Dr. Eisingham, we may ask you to answer this as, uh, as best as you can. Are there particular signs and symptoms to detect if someone is likely of harm or violence, like risk factors of committing violence, a certain profile, as tough of a question as that might be?
6: Can you all hear me? Okay. Okay. Um... I, I think uh, Nick asked me the toughest question of all. Um, you know, the I've been um, working with the chronically mentally ill uh, since I started my career back in the 70s. Uh, I'm working on my 36th year um, with uh, the State uh, Department of Human Services uh, Mental Health Division. Um, I worked at Mantino first of all for about 12 years, and since that time at Tinley Park Mental Health Center. Um, uh, when I started at uh, Mantino, um, there were approximately uh, 4,000 uh, people who were there uh, because of chronic mental illness and the average length of stay at the facility at that time was about 30 years. And um, now at Tenley Park, uh, there is an inpatient population of um, just a little under 100. um, And um, the average length of stay is more like uh, two weeks. so there's been a lot of changes that have occurred, um, and I've had a lot of interesting experiences along the way. Um, and I think that uh, during the whole 35 years, I've been asking you know, and seeking answers to this question of uh, whether or not you can predict when violent things are going to happen. Um, and it's you know we have uh, mental health uh, laws. We have um, uh, you know in in the state of Illinois, for instance, uh, you don't necessarily have to wait until someone commits an act of violence if uh, a threat is made, a significant threat. Um, the law does allow that um, person can be uh, held involuntarily for treatment. I guess this now speaks to the that mandatory thing, and I, I like the idea of walking the student over. Um, I get a lot of phone calls uh, from concerned. Relatives, uh, most of them perhaps through my contacts with National Alliance for the Mentally Ill uh, chapter, um, where uh, someone is concerned because, um, you know, uh, someone went off their medication uh, for uh, treatment for a mental illness. Uh, treatment that they had previously had Um, they're not uh, currently in need of an inpatient or, or they have been discharged from an inpatient setting now they went off their medication and now the family begins to see some deterioration they try to walk them over to the mental health center but they won't go And uh, they call the police, and the police say, well, there's nothing they can do. And um, so then what can they do? Well, there is one provision, um, and that provision is um, if uh, a petition can be prepared and uh, a uh, brief hearing is held in which uh, the judge is given... Uh, sufficient evidence to find probable cause then a person can be ordered into a detention and examination But there's very strict limits on this because uh, we don't want to violate anyone's liberty um, and we don't want to well let me put it this way we don't want any false positives and uh... When it comes to the issue of being able to predict uh, whether violence is going to occur, um, this is a big problem because we're talking about something that has a very low incidence. Any, anyone who, uh, who has gotten into uh, the mathematics side of this, uh, looking at statistics, um, it's very difficult to predict uh, something that is a low incidence behavior. And what are we talking about? Low incidence. In the first place, uh, if you take, for instance, the uh, diagnosis of major mental illness like schizophrenia, well, you're talking about only two people out of a hundred that even have it. Um, and maybe you can add two more out of a hundred if you add bipolar. And then you can add a few more if you talk about drug-induced mood disorders and things like that, but still you're talking about a small population. And then in addition to that, if you want to talk about who has the potential for violence, not all those people who have a diagnosis of mental illness have violence. Uh, there's been a lot of work put into trying to sort out um, <clears throat> who is potential for violence um, and the the finding uh, there, there's been lots of attempts by means of psychological testing for instance um, so what have we come up with well um, we don't really have any psychological tests that are really good at predicting um, our best predictor turns out to be history of previous violence. And, and that's notable because when we talk about some of these incidents of campus violence that have caused us concern, there wasn't any previous history, at least not of violence. There may have been some history of uh, expression of need, and uh, if we look at studies uh, of high school incidents, for instance, uh, uh, that were done by the, uh, um, the Secret Service uh, um, Safe Schools Initiative, they looked at 37 cases of uh, uh, violence in, in high schools um, and um, Most of these people were not uh, diagnosed with some kind of illness. Um, Most of these people did uh, convey some kind of... uh, You know, they told somebody that they were planning to do something.
0: That's what the chief was saying.
6: Right. And... um, um, but they, the, the people they told were peers, other kids, and uh, that information never got passed to an
0: adult. Had uh, it, it would have possibly prevented something from happening. Right. So, Dr. Eisen, what you're saying is that the mentally ill population is, has a very low incidence, actually, of violence. Right. However, um, if you have one who is mentally ill and has shown violence in the past, that is what is going to be our predictor. Or a better predictor.
6: Uh, right. Uh, I was going to add one more thing along that line. Uh, where we have looked through all of our tests and measurements for uh, things that do show some uh, statistical prediction capability, the thing that we were able to find is not uh, you know, symptoms of schizophrenia, not symptoms of uh, bipolar manic or bipolar depressed even, um, but actually uh, the uh, psychopathy checklist was the only instrument that showed some predictive power. Uh, So there you're talking about uh, a personality disorder. You're talking about... uh, Traits that are relatively enduring of an antisocial nature. And I think I'm going to have to explain that a little.
0: And, I, and I think what you mean by antisocial is doing uh, criminal acts in society, like uh, fighting,
6: That's shooting. Correct. That's correct. Um, you know, th- th- these are, are features like um, at what age did the person first get in trouble for violating the law? Uh, and and what and is there a significant history of Correct. such violations?
0: And if we know of a person that does become violent when they are symptomatic, I would say that's somebody that should probably definitely be in treatment. And speaking of treatment as well, Doctor Eisinger, thank you very much for your insights. Uh <clears throat> Turning it to the side of medication, which is a, a pretty large issue, uh, we turn this one to our psychiatric nurse, Mary. Uh, Mary, uh, how, how, in your professional opinion, how do medications help individuals with mental disorders? And also, is it likely for them to become aggressive with certain medications? I know that's also a very tough question.
7: That really is, and um, but I will let you know that. The medications that we have available to us today are much different than the meds that we had even 10 years ago. So there is some hope in the development, um, the research and development of drugs for psychiatric illness. All of the drugs that we have now work in the brain, and if to correct the issue. So if it works in the brain, what does that tell you about mental illness? Is it something that I choose? I choose to get up and be sad and depressed? Do I choose to get up and be manic and running around? Do I choose to hear voices? Do I choose to see things? No, these are all brain disorders. In the 90s, um, mental health decided that the 90s was gonna be the year of the brain. And that's the decade of the brain. And that's exactly what it did. It really focused its research on the brain. We got a tremendous amount of new drugs available to us to treat depression, to treat bipolar illness, and to treat schizophrenia. Those drugs are now the first line of defense for many patients, and the older drugs are not being used as frequently. All of the drugs across every classification the anti anxiety, the antidepressants, the antipsychotics, and the mood stabilizers come with horrific side effects. How many in here have been on an antibiotic to treat an infection? Just raise your hand. Okay. How many stopped taking the antibiotic once they felt better? Most everybody does stop taking the medication once they start feeling better. Very similar to a patient diagnosed with a mental illness. Once you start feeling better and you're handling situations better, you tend not to take your medication. Does that mean that violence is going to occur? The research um, indicates based on what medications that you're taking. If you're taking antipsychotic medication and you were taking it because you were hearing voices and you were paranoid and you were becoming aggressive, yes, predictably, you will become aggressive again off of your medication. There is some research out there to suggest that once you start taking an antidepressant, that you will become yourself suicidal. That's, those are small studies, um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not convinced of those yet. So I, I, I think that the, that's still open, you know, for research. By far, um, medication has been um, the number one treatment um, for mental illness in the United States. And I just want, I just, I I need to say this, that in the late 50s, and Dr. Izinga will certainly bear this out, in the late 50s, um, Illinois was very instrumental in the development of the antipsychotic medications through the Illinois Institute of Psychiatric Research, which is um, down around the Medical Center campus. Um, we held the number one position in the states for mental health and mental health care until around um, the late 60s, early 70s, and then we slowly dropped. We now rank out of our 50 states number 48 in mental health care. Um, I know that our state facility, because of people like Dr. Ozinga and other staff members who have been there for a very long time, do the very best they can with what they have. I can't imagine if they had even a little bit more how much better we could be doing, Um, and that's something that your politicians need to take a look at. I just had to get that in. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. You're right.
1: I can
0: even speak from my personal experiences with working with clients. It's difficult to have them gain insight without their medications, mm-hmm. especially the schizophrenic client. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of announcements that I think we should make to the audience. Uh, for those that do not know where the counseling center is, I, we would ask David to tell us where it's located uh, for students that may not Nowhere it's located.
4: It's over in the College Center. Get out and get something neat, come upstairs, and we'll take care of you. <laughs> it's over in the College Center on the second floor. Uh,
0: we're going to open up questions to the audience, but before we do that, I would like uh, 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 Chief O'Connor had uh, wanted to make a statement to our audience as well.
2: Just as a real quick wrap-up of the comments that you just hit here, and I think it's really important. Um, I'm going to tell you after 32 years of law enforcement, we're the people who respond to deal with the issues as they pop up, uh, and that can be any time, day or night. And what I would say is, to dovetail off of what Mary was talking about, in the mid-'80s, we saw a dramatic drop in funding and support from the state of Illinois and a diminishment of uh, psychological and support services for families who were struggling with these issues. Uh, So it's one of those things is, as members of this community, the the Marine Valley community, you've seen some of the assets that are sitting up in here. And and, and I've been a municipal chief for most of my life. In the mid-'80s, I was one of the, the response units to... Winnetka to deal with the first issue for diapers and that was the Lori Dan issue uh, and that was one of the things we st- first started seeing a, mi- a middle aged adjusted by her neighbors, female who went out and shot people in a grammar school and I think when we saw that we basically saw that that family had written her off and allowed her to function on her own because there was no supports so what I will tell you is, is as a person who's had to deal with on the outside world before I came here uh it, it, there's nothing wrong with mental illness just like i always say there's nothing wrong with hair loss okay we're going to struggle with this in our lives and if we ignore it yeah. Not only will I get a sunburn, but somebody else in your family is going to be left alone to deal with these issues. So what we basically want to do as a police officer, I want to tell you, don't stop medicating yourself without going back and seeing somebody, mm-hmm. because most of the shooters, the history is, they stopped medicating themselves. Okay, that, Because you felt better, as Mary brought up, you stop medicating yourself. And especially with young adults, it, there tends to be sexual side effects with this. If something's not working for you, go back and see your person of treatment. Okay? And I just want to tell you, thanks for, for your paying attention here because you've got resources.
0: Pat, thank you very much. It's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. So, whereas, if one had diabetes or any other major symptom uh, or any other major illness, we would really encourage them to take medications. If somebody had a brain disease, nothing wrong with taking medications for that. However, when it comes to a mental illness, we're a little shy to take those medications. If I was to break my leg and I refused to go to the hospital, you would think something was wrong with me. It's the same thing with someone's symptomatic. They need to go to the hospital at times. Now, uh, is there anybody in the audience that wants to ask a question to our panel or, or a comment? Come on up to the microphone.
5: I think his name is Mary, right, the nurse? Yeah. Okay, so what do you think about the danger of over-medication? So, um, sorry, um, so antipsychotic, antidepressants, uh, mood stabilizer, multiple ones of each. Um, with all the side effects that they have and the mixing of the drugs, what are the dangers of over-medication, over-medica- especially for someone diagnosed at, like, say, 10, 12 years old and growing up?
7: Um, you know question. what, there's, that's an excellent question. They're um, using the diagnostic criteria that um, psychologists and psychiatrists utilize. Um, taking a look at the younger population, you're talking about 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, are they demonstrating symptoms of attention deficit disorder, or is it really a bipolar disorder, and then they start medicating? Um, some of the medications that we have have been tested in the pediatric population, and they can be taken by pediatric patients. Um, Some of them have not, well, many of them have not been tested on PEDS, and what they do is they say that when they give it to the pediatric patient that it's an off-label use. Off-label meaning that uh, it's not been tested for PEDS. Okay? Um, It's when you get... um, Adolescents, young adults, middle aged adults, and even the elderly, where we start mixing medications, I would really recommend that if that were being done by a family practitioner or someone in general practice, that you seek the expertise of a psychiatrist, a board certified psychiatrist. That it's one thing to be getting, you know, a Xanax or an Ativan from your family physician, and it's a whole nother ball game to be getting. Um, some of the antipsychotics like risperidol, um, lithium as a mood stabilizer from your family practice person. I think that they need to be seen by um, board-certified psychiatrists. And then they they, titer, they titrate those drugs according to the patient's symptoms. So hopefully they're not over-medicated, but there will be a window when they're over-medicated until they can get a maintenance dose going on some of the medications. And the medications, they don't work, like, right away. Like, if I'm going to take an antidepressant and I go home, you know, and I take it tomorrow, I'm, it's not going to work for, like, 21 days, sometimes up to um, four to six weeks. So you have to give the medications time to act, too.
0: I think that's an excellent point. I think with those types of medications, a psychiatrist definitely needs to be consulted because as good as our family physicians are, they might give those medications as well. Mm -hmm. And I know they believe that they're competent, but I believe that those medications should be given by a psych doctor. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have another question. Uh, Dr. Eisinger. I I just wanted to interject a
6: quick uh, comment to both Chief O'Connor's and and Mary's uh, observations. Um, the, The... um, observation that uh, uh, people go off their medications. Um, and th- the comment I wanted to make is that those who do, do go off their medications um, are really the ones who are self-medicating. Oh, yeah. um, and it's better, you know, uh, to have... Um, the doctor uh, monitor and supervise that um, it has a lot to do with uh, not just uh, you know those few incidents that we see of of campus violence but it has an awful lot to do with recidivism for uh, those state hospitals I work in as well so um, Keep keep up with your doctor. Don't do it yourself.
0: Absolutely, and definitely don't self-medicate. Thank you, Dr. Isaac. We have another question right here, and then I have a comment in the back as well.
8: Hi, this is uh, questions for Dr. Sharma. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, if you can speak more about the crisis management team that you have on campus, um, the functions, the the functions of that group, the composition of that group, uh, responsibilities. Things of that nature. We're on campus here. We formed one, and we're trying to work out all the kinks of of that, so it would... Be nice to hear from you what your crisis management team looks like.
3: Okay, so what I'm referring to is what we call the CRT, Crisis Response Team. There's also an emergency management team that's larger scale that comes out of the President's office. But I'm, what I'm referring to is a crisis response team, CRT, which is housed in the Division of Student Affairs. So this committee reports to the Vice President of Student Affairs. It is chaired by the Associate Vice President of Student Affairs and then the Standing Member. Members are all of the assistant vice presidents of student affairs, and then the directors from the counseling center, housing and dining, commuter and non traditional students' office, judicial affairs. Okay, and I think we're actually going to start including the director from uh, student involvement and leadership as well. Now, this committee meets in response to any type of crisis situation that has a larger impact. So we had a flood in August that caused the university closure. Um, It meant student deaths we meet. Uh, There was a threat posted in December that caused closure for a day, and then we were kind of meeting around the clock after 2.14.
8: Yeah, so the composition of your team is going to look a little bit differently than ours because we're not um, a residential campus. So you have, like, members of your committee consist of um, residential folks, dining, things of that nature. So our composition might be a little bit different. Does the committee take reports, um, like, um, how do I put this, from faculty, like about a student's writing or about... um, you know, disruptive behavior in the classroom. How do you filter out which reports come down okay. to the committee?
3: What we have developed is that the Office of Judicial Affairs has become the repository of information, okay? So that anytime there's any type of report, I would call it of a student of concern in terms of what you're describing, multiple people may get that information but we always centralize it back to judicial affairs so that's the one office where everything can be connected. This was one of the things that came out of the governor's panel report from Virginia Tech that you need to have on your campus. Some centralized area where you have multiple data sorts on one student that it's all going to the same place so things can get connected. All right, so that's Judicial Affairs on our office. But some of these examples you're talking about, student of concern in the classroom, disturbed writings, I may take those calls directly, and that has happened. And then we'll advise faculty members on how he or she should respond to the student.
0: Dr. Sharma, thank you for answering the question. Uh, I have a comment back here and then this young lady in front of me here.
5: I just wanted to comment on, uh, you know, the various um, uh, reference to taking medications and making sure following, uh, you know, the regimen uh, you know, as uh, prescribed by the doctor. Yeah, I'm not undermining that, but as a psychologist uh, and having worked in a clinical setting and uh, with ADHD population, we should not... Uh, downplay the effects of getting the appropriate therapy along with it. And uh, again, you know, social support systems should be built around the client's needs as well. And I've seen that when you have all this in place, the effects of medication somehow doubles or even triples. So we should have that in place too along with the medication, medication in itself may not take care of all aspects of uh, psychiatric
7: illness. Um, Could I respond also? I certainly did not mean to give that impression. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. But one of the reasons is, and I do believe this, is that um, the first line of defense that we're seeing, especially in Illinois because of funding, is medication and stabilization Um, without uh, follow-up and therapy because of the cost. If you can't afford it, um, the therapy is then also provided for you. But I, I certainly, I think it's a combo, I really do, of services. It's always best coupled with both. Eh? Oh, most definitely. I definitely agree. We have a, a question right here as
0: well.
1: Um, okay, um, I'm not sure exactly who this should be directed to, but um, it's more a question of if... Such campus violence is on the rise, and we have so few studies on it. What's being done now to study and to prevent
7: campus violence? Francine? Here, here, take the microphone. We the
1: opportunity to serve on Governor Blagojevich's task force on campus security. And, you know, I mean, I'll let you field that question, but you see, you should, you should know, right, that Illinois. Even before the shootings at Northern, right after Virginia Tech shootings, the governor had created a statewide task force on campus security. I am a retired psychology professor from Maureen Valley Community College. I retired two years ago. My name is Francine Smaluka. And I was concerned about these problems while I was teaching here. And then when I retired, say have all that time. So I just want to say that, and I also, I'm the social responsibility chair for the Illinois Psychological Association, the IPA. And see, we also have a task force within our IPA group that's looking at this. So so there are people looking at those things. If you want to talk to me later, I'd be happy to talk to you.
3: In an article that was published last year that was tracking school-related shootings, especially in higher education, from 1966 through 2007, there were 88 uh, people killed on colleges and universities. Now, that's a lot of people, 88 people killed. But through 2007, that figure of 88, over half of them occurred in two incidences, Virginia Tech and 1966 at Texas at the Bell Tower. All right, now... The flip side of that is in some ways it feels like we have to restart the clock of counting these incidences back at Columbine because these things are continuing to occur. In the last three weeks, we've had eight schools closed because of threats. We've had two threats on our campus in the last two weeks, um, which is causing a resurgence of just emotional and reactions and um, unfortunately it's becoming a part of the culture that students today are growing up with and you know my concern is that people will get desensitized to threats and not take them seriously because they should be taken seriously so I think at both local regional and national levels what you're asking about is being studied and looked at both from a psychological as well as from I think security and law enforcement
2: perspectives Chief? Bureau of Justice has done a study on this, and, and they're not escalating. Uh, I can tell you there's two issues that we have to deal with, and doctor just mentioned that there was two shootings that accounted for, for a lot of the deaths, and then there was the the local uh, the copycat uh, rebound factor. Because we report things instantaneously today, information goes out. Uh, And and as you saw the situation with Northern and the situation with Virginia Tech, uh, law enforcement, local law enforcement, whether it's on the campus or in the county or whoever's responding, doesn't really have the ability to lock down the way we used to and do an investigation. The information is all over there. and You get a lot of sources. uh, And then what happens is those people who are marginally uh, aggressive towards their institution will either react in a copycat effect or we get the threats. And the threats are from I got a bad grade or I can't stand this school or we're going out for pizza tonight and I've got a test, okay? And that's the the spectrum that the the Bureau of Justice is finding in terms of uh, there's a lot of reasons why you're getting school closings, but there's also, uh, I wouldn't say a a, a rise in them. I would say there's actually, because of numbers, a decrease in the incidents, but there's better reporting, so we're getting a rebound effect for longer reporting than we would going back to the, the, the Texas Bell Tower shooting.
0: Chief, I can also add in speaking to Dr. Eisinger yesterday that uh, there is a law in Illinois that does, say, that does state that an individual that gets hospitalized in a facility, in a state hospital, or I'm not even sure in a private hospital, does, does not have access to guns or should not have access to guns. Now, I'm not sure if that applies I know that applies to the state hospital. However, if hypothetically one was to be hospitalized on the inpatient unit at Christ, would that still apply? Would they be barred from purchasing a weapon?
2: The way the federal, I mean, the State of Illinois Firearms Act acts is if, in fact, you've been institutionalized, Uh, and that's the key. There's a lot of these people who have been involved in in possession of firearms that had valid firearms uh, owner of identification cards, but the there's supposed to be a report filed with the Illinois State Police which will revoke their right to, to have firearms the flip side of that the flip side of that is that keeps a lot of people from going to get treatment that they, they normally have, especially in rural societies that hunting and, 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 and firearms ownership is a tradition in the family. Because they're, they're aware of the fact that they're going to lose the ability to have firearms. And then the other issue that you're going to have to deal with is the fact that, uh, you know, we're dealing with gun violence issues across the United States right now. Uh, so if somebody wants to get a gun and they're not supposed to have it, they're going to get it anyway.
0: We have a question right here uh, from this young lady, and then we have uh, time for just a couple more, and then we'll slowly wrap it up.
7: Sarah?
5: Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm just a student of psychology major. I had a question about with the nowadays research in the medicine about psychology. uh, Is it pretty advanced in, like, um, curing the whole complexity of the mental you know, problems that people have, because sometimes we just come with one problem, like he's bipolar or she's bipolar, but we don't see all the other little things like depression too, anger too, anxiety. So is medicine that advanced and up-to-date?
7: Medication for mental illness does not cure the illness. We have no cure for mental illness. Um, Medication will um, allow the person to reach a higher level of functioning, um... And adaptability, um, but it does not cure mental illness.
0: Thank you, Mary. Have a question here.
5: My name is Val, and
1: um, I just had a question in regards to um, if there was a situation here. Us attending today have heard of the, now know that there is a loud noise that comes over a system or. A text message that you're trying to, you know, implement. How are the students going to get that information? Is there going to be, like, an instructor from every class to allow people to sign up? Or how are we going to let – because we hear fire, like, the fire drills and stuff. It's every week, or, you know, we just know – we ignore it. So how would we know when we hear these noises, like, oh, that's the – you know, something's –
2: that's the question that keeps me up for the 11, last 11 months. How do I talk to all of you? And that's one of the reasons why it was important I'm going to be here. I'll be honest with you. I've met some of you around campus. I've been down in the student center and, and, and did a session down there. I have been going out, and most of my, my cohorts are faculty members have been starting to see me do sessions for faculty. But realistically, what do the students do? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'm actually trying to work up something where maybe we in College 100 or uh, uh, some type of uh, webcast that can, can be required for your first semester here that you go through it because there's no way for me physically to touch 70,000 people, and some of them are distance learners. So I think it's actually important, and I agree with you. I'm going to talk to the Glacier coming up and hit some, some points. Uh, but it, it, I can't cover all issues, and we're putting together a handbook for the disabled students here for evacuation. Uh, but I think it's, it's important that our distance learners know as much when they come on campus as, as you do sitting here with me today. So that's something I'm working on right now, uh, and I think it's important that not only the faculty but the students here know how to respond.
1: Do
2: you want to know what the, the, the siren sounded, sounded like?
1: How do you hear
2: it? Oh, it's, it sounds like a squad car in the building. Okay with a siren on if that's what you're going to oh yeah you're going to hear it and then it will be announcement afterwards you can't ignore that it's it's ridiculous
0: right, we've heard it
2: you've heard it it's it doesn't sound like anything you've heard before it sounds like a squad car in your drive in your driveway oh yeah well then they hear the announcement that's put out over the PA system that's that's a precursor to the announcements it's an attention getter we installed it specifically to get those doors that are closed and those people who, like me, who is an a- evening a professor who is dis- isn't paying attention to what's going on out there, it makes us pay attention. So it's another issue to draw your attention to what's being said in the hallways. And again, that's going to be taken care of once we get into the, the phone systems inside all the rooms. So that literally, you won't have to be paying attention. It'll be talking to you from the podium.
0: We have one last comment, and then we're going to have to wrap it up. I know you guys have to get back to your classes. Um, uh, This gentleman right here asked, if someone does seek treatment, would that limit them to certain jobs that they'd be able to apply for, like uh, law enforcement?
2: (laughs) Okay, I can tell you what, 30 years ago when I came on that job, one of the questions I filled out on the 3 million applications that I filled out was, have you been treated for a psychological disorder? Uh, and you'll be lie boxed on it, no doubt about it. If in fact today you are in a position where you're filling out an application, I think law enforcement's a little broader, broader looking. And we we tend, I as a police chief, and I do assessments and hiring for the Illinois chiefs. We tend to look at case by case right now. So when we make a recommendation to the criminal justice uh, uh, people, whether it's uh, the state, county, or, or local law enforcement, it's based on what's on your application. Again, though, if you've lost your right to a firearm, you're going to have to reappeal and have your your firearm card issued.
0: But that's not treatment. Treatment is different than hospitalization.
2: Treatment is 100% different. And I've I've actually talked to some counselors here in this building, and I tell them, go ahead and get treatment. Uh, Treatment... Just like I talked to you about me being bald, it's something that we all go through, okay? What I will tell you is as long as you're not impatient, that issue won't even be addressed. But be upfront about it, discuss it, uh, and let the local community make that decision. Dr.
0: Eisinger, did you want to add a comment?
6: Yes, I just wanted to add a comment because this is a question that I get asked all the time by uh, patients that I treat. You know, um, is my having been in the hospital going to affect uh, my applying for a job? It's a difficult question uh, for me, uh, but I usually uh, tell them, um, yes, it it, it may... Uh, You know, there is the firearm owner's identification card loss issue, and yes, so if you're applying for a job that requires the use of a gun, uh, you may not be able to get that. Um, As far as any other jobs you might be looking for, um, check and see whether the prospective employer is an equal opportunity employer, because if they are, then... Uh, having had treatment or not, or having been hospitalized or not, should not be an issue.
0: And to add to that, wouldn't, I don't know if the, the panel can speak to this, but if we do have a schizophrenic client, let's say, who does become paranoid and their delusions are that other people are trying to kill them, wouldn't with reasonable doubt say that that person probably shouldn't be handling firearms?
6: I would think uh, not. Um, and Um, but there is something you raise that that, uh, I'd like to make a point about Uh, just because someone uh, may have been given a diagnosis of schizophrenia does not mean that he is globally disabled that is to say um, okay so he may have difficulty with hearing voices uh, but that does not prevent him from uh, being able to uh, cook or to lay bricks or, uh, you know, do a number of other anything, things.
0: Anything. Manager, anything. Well, once again, I wanted to thank our panel members for being here. Can, can I just, can yeah, I just yeah, add that one thing? Absolutely. On absolutely.
3: Dr. Sharma. So let me just, uh, on this, because a lot of questions about uh, mental illness and violence, Someone who has a mental illness is more likely to be a victim of a violent crime than they are to commit one. Mm -hmm. They are more likely to be a victim than a perpetrator. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good point. Very well said. We thank you all for coming out. Is there anything else that we wanted to add? Well, again, thank you very much for coming to our panel discussion, taking time out of your busy schedules and classes. Thank you again to you guys, to the library, and to all of our departments. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.